From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department will test 5G wireless technology at five bases across the country under a new contract. The $600 million contract will make the bases test beds for the technology under the department's 5G strategy. FedScoop reports the bases are Joint Base Lewis-McChord, Naval Base San Diego, Marine Corps Logistics Base Georgia, Nellis Air Force Base, and Hill Air Force Base. The Federal Electronic Health Record Modernization Program Office's interoperability strategy is in Congress. According to FCW, the strategy includes goals for patient health outcomes and empowering patients. The strategy calls for human-centered design principles and understanding workflows for VA, DOD, and private sector users. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue violated the Hatch Act in a speech in North Carolina in August. Purdue's speech included remarks about why people voted for President Trump in 2016 and why they'd vote for him again in 2020. GovExec reports the Office of Special Counsel's Hatch Act unit says if Purdue pays the government back for the costs of the trip, it won't pursue any punishment against him. The Army has signed on to the Air Force's Joint All-Domain Command and Control. The two branches will create data sharing standards within the next two years to feed the system that will let warfighters in both branches share information on the battlefield. Bob Work is former Deputy Secretary of Defense. Bob, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the intersection of what the services are doing with JADC2 and the artificial intelligence work that the Jake is doing and that you started when you were in DOD? Well, Francis, good to be here. You know, this time reminds me a lot of just after Vietnam, when the joint force turned its attention back to the Soviet Union and realized that the Soviet Union had a new campaign plan uh, that was very stressing and uh, started to call into question the U.S. ability to deter an attack on Western Europe. And it triggered a period of intellectual foment and concept, concept development. And that's what's happening now. Now, I'd like to correct just one thing you said. Uh, it's not the Air Force's uh, JADC2. It is truly the joint force. Back in October 2019, at the Senior Leadership Council, the Secretary of Defense said, we are going to need to have a new joint warfighting concept to take on a peer competitor like China or Russia who are as good at battle network and guided munitions warfare as we are. What that means is they could look deep and see what we were doing, shoot deep with long range guided munitions and kill deep because the guided munitions were going to hit what they were shot at in most cases, unless they were intercepted. And what happened was there are four functional concepts are going to be associated with this. One is command and control, one is fires, one is information advantage, and one is contested logistics. Now, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, Air Force, you're responsible for the C2 aspects of this. You're gonna be the ones who think this functional concept through for the Joint Force. Navy, you're gonna look at fires. Marines, you're gonna look at information advantage. And Army, you're gonna look at contested logistics. So the Air Force is moving out on this idea 
And JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control, is very much a joint concept that all four of the services have signed up for. So the Army name for this is Project X and Convergence. And it does the same thing that the Air Force JADC2 project does. And all that's happened so far is the Army and the Air Force have completed a handshake and said, we are going to make sure we're totally integrated, that our exercises are integrated. We're going to have exchange officers. We're going to have constant concept development meetings. So like I said, it's an exciting time. This is exactly how air land battle was born. The Air Force and the Army worked together to develop the concept, and then they tested it out, and they pursued the capabilities that would allow both of them to pursue it. Being the history nerd that I am, Bob, I appreciate your reference to the post-Vietnam era. And I wonder, uh, to go in a, bit direct, a different direction than we anticipated, what continues to foster the same type of intellectual development, the same type of innovative development that happened in the 1975 to 1985 period? What can we, what can we do now to see that same type of gain happen in the 2020 to 2030 window? I think you were seeing it. Um, same thing happened. Uh, after Vietnam, we came out of Vietnam, our gear was all worn out. We had been focused on fighting a regional adversary with a lot of unconventional warfare aspects to it. And we turned our attention back to the Soviet Union. They had completely modernized. They had a new concept of operation, which called for attacking NATO in echelons, in successive waves of forces. And what they were trying to do is punch a hole in the NATO defenses and through that hole, they would push what was called an operational maneuver group, a fast-moving armored column deep into NATO's rear. Now, the reason why I wanted to do this was to prevent NATO from turning to tactical nuclear weapons to stop their attack. And the Army and the Air Force said, hey, look, the way we're structured now and the way we're planning to defend won't work. Well, the same thing has happened. We've had enormous conventional advantage since the end of Cold War. You know, for the last 25, almost 30 years, the U.S. has had an advantage in that it employs guided munitions much, much at a much higher scale than anybody else, and it has the battle network, the command and control, to actually fire these guided munitions at discriminate targets, which achieve effects on the battlefield. And what has happened is the Chinese and Russians have caught up. So the old way our old way of doing business for the past 30 years doesn't work anymore. So that's what has triggered the intellectual foment. The services have all got together and said, how are we going to fight against a Russia or a China? And how do we convince them that we can win that fight, which is the way to have deterrence? You convince the military planners on the Russian and Chinese side that if they choose to exert military force, that they are most likely going to lose if they go up against the U.S. joint force. I apologize for turning this into a philosophical and existential discussion, <laughs> Bob, rather than a focus on JADC2. It's great to have you here, and I'd love to continue this dialogue. It's, it's a fascinating way to look at what we're up against. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Francis.
Up next, more on sharing data between forces and across the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, inside the Pentagon's new data strategy. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Defense Department's new data strategy features seven guiding principles for using data across the entire department. The strategy comes as the Army and Air Force are focusing on sharing data in an effort you heard about a few moments ago. Megan Metzger is founder and CEO of Decode. Megan, welcome. Thanks for coming back on. What are your main takeaways as you pour over this new data strategy from the Pentagon? Sure, there's a lot there. I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me was how much of a culture shift um, and how people-centric the data strategy is going to have to be because we're going to have to actually engage with the soldiers and all the mission owners to really identify what's important, what data do we need, how do we leverage it. It's going to be a, a quite the undertaking for sure. A couple of numbers here that jumped out at me that I wonder uh, if there is potential for issues with. Seven principles, as I mentioned a moment ago, seven goals, 33 objectives. Is there a risk that there are too many layers to make this people friendly, as you as you suggested a moment ago? Sure. You know, I actually initially had the same reaction when you're trying to measure too much. It can actually sometimes have an unintended consequence. But I, I know that there's talk of the commandments that are going to come out, and I think that's going to be critical. You know, one thing that we teach when we're doing training for the DOD on how to move forward with technological innovation is, you know, focusing on the outcomes and really helping the people that have to implement this strategy know exactly what they're measuring and give them the one or two things that they really need to focus on. Um, you know, whether that's you need to make sure that we can make decisions faster within five minutes. So I think as long as the numbers are focusing on the right outcomes and not just things like 10% of the data is being used, we need something that shows real results. You're gonna have to break it down into small bites for the, the mission and the users on the ground. What's the risk that that turns into uh, a thousand points of dashboards all across the Pentagon, Megan? Well, always a risk. We're really good at dashboards, but I think as long as we provide great guidance, but don't become too restrictive in what we're going to do, that's when you really start to see the value of data. And I think the biggest takeaway here is that they need to be talking to the folks that are using the data day to day and the ones that will be leveraging the decisions, because that's where we'll get all of the interesting and the really innovative ideas for how we can apply that data to make it you know, something really powerful that the DOD can use. Uh, as an offensive strategy. You know, at, at Decode, we're data-driven and we're much, much smaller than the DOD, but we had to be really thoughtful about making sure we're asking the right people, what data do we have, how can we use it, what decisions can we drive, and giving them clear guidance on how to do that. So to that end, uh, this uh, report in the uh, Federal Computer Week from Lauren Williams, a defense official said a major aim of the strategy and implementation to come will be to map the Defense Department's entire data enterprise, including every data professional, which would fold under the DOD's chief data officer. How do you get something like that right when you consider what the scope of that will be, Megan? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question and one that I've been thinking a lot about because mapping the entire DOD, that's gonna take 20 years. And we don't have 20 years if we're going to stay competitive with other countries that are leveraging data 
you know, at a different, because they have different standards and things like that. Um, you know, one thing that we talk about in that training that I mentioned is breaking things down into smaller kind of minimal viable products. Let's focus on the areas that we think would have the highest level of return and, and take it step by step. But we really need to break it down um, in order of kind of priority. Maybe we start with those really mission critical life or death situations where we have data that could be helpful uh, and then kind of make our our way from there, but we're going to have to break it down into more of that MVP concept. Uh, Defense News reports that General John Hyten, the vice chief, uh, uh, vice chair of the Joint Chiefs, says this should all be in place by 2030. So that's not 20 years; that's still 10. And the defense official that briefed FCW says they think it can happen sooner. Is that reasonable? You know, it's reasonable if we do a couple of things. I think one. We need to look at the emerging tech community for sure, because there's a lot of really powerful tools that can help with this process, whether that's you know just assessing the data in an organization, cleaning it, labeling it, all of that. There's a lot of really powerful tools because the DOD is not the first large enterprise to have this issue. So I think looking to the private sector for best practices and emerging capabilities is gonna be critical. I also think focusing on enabling the workforce and training them to understand how to leverage the data, how to move forward with it. I mean, we're going to have to have innovative procurement involved. We're gonna to have to look, take a hard look at policies and ask a lot of why questions. Um, Cause there's a lot of myth that flows down through policies that might prevent us from moving forward. So I think we're gonna to have to empower that first level of our leaders and then keep on going down until our workforce is trained on how to do this. It's possible for sure. We just want to make sure not to overcomplicate it and really give folks tangible ways to move forward. Less than a minute left, Megan. One of the potential challenges there is this passage from the FCW piece. Military departments are already working on their own norms and standards. Is there potential here to have to undo some of that work or is it just a, 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 a curation issue? Um, I think it's probably both. I, there's a lot of great pockets in the DOD that have done pretty fantastic things around data. I think if we find those and learn and apply those lessons to kind of create this best practice, some folks will have to undo a little bit of what they've done, but if we actually look at what's working already and leverage that, hopefully the rework won't be as large as we, as it could be. The 20 seconds left. Is that standards issue maybe the most important thing to get right or that could turn into a roadblock, Megan? definitely could turn into a roadblock because you could have all the data in the world and if you aren't applying it in a way that's actually useful or do something, you know, if you're not able to actually do something with that data, then this was all for naught. Megan Metzger, great to have you back. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. Up next, a small business do-over at the General Services Administration. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to make sure Polaris doesn't wind up like Alliant 2. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The General Services Administration's new Polaris contract will replace the Alliant 2 contract. It canceled recently. GSA is taking industry feedback on what it should include. Larry Allen is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Larry, thanks very much for joining me. What is new about Polaris and what will be different? Francis, I think one of the things that we know is going to be new about Polaris is GSA's emphasis on innovation. They really want uh, new businesses, smaller businesses. This is intended to be a small business contract. And they were going out of their way to say, bring us the cutting edge. 
a couple of possible changes to uh, Polaris over Alliance Small Business 2. GSA may elect to implement non-contract level pricing for this program. And that would be the first major acquisition program aside from a couple of GSA schedules where they're gonna try that out, where they can use the authority that Congress gave them to try non-priced contracts. Francis, I think that could be innovative in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, you don't have to spend so much time putting that in your RFP if you're GSA and you don't have to respond to it if you're a contractor. That could reduce the cycle time. It could also potentially reduce protests. So I think that could be very innovative if they took that route. This is something that people have been asking for for a long time. Roger Waldron talked about it when he was on the program the last time. What, what's been the holdup? This is something that people have been asking for. Why has this been something that GSA, at least, has hesitated to do? I think there are a couple of reasons, Francis. From a business side, it is, will your customer agency still have faith that GSA has performed a valuable service by putting the contracts into place with good terms and conditions and vetting the contractors to make sure they're responsible and responsive, but did not put any prices in at the contract level. So a federal buyer could say, that's really great GSA, but you left more work for me to do. Uh, now that I have to be the one who negotiates pricing at the task order level. So I think there's been that hesitancy uh, for GSA to move forward on that part. And I also think the oversight community inside the agency, you know, this is new. And anytime you have something new, the oversight community really wants to vet it. Emily Murphy, the administrator of GSA, was on the program on Sunday and uh, said small business about 842 times. Yeah. I might be exaggerating a little bit while she was on. GSA's commitment to small business is obvious. And Laura Stanton, writing about this pricing issue on this blog post about Polaris, wrote this. It's important that we continue our efforts to increase competition in the marketplace by creating opportunities for qualified small businesses because of this shift uh, uh, in the focus of pricing competition to the task order level. What, what will make that work for small businesses or is this kind of an inherent disadvantage maybe because of that? I think what makes it work for small businesses is look, uh, you're a smaller business, you may not have been in business for very long, but you've got an innovative solution that people seem to like. Now, those could be government customers, they could be commercial customers. So you're not a new company just getting started. You've got some sales, some business, but you don't really have an overall disciplined pricing model. That's been kind of something that has hold, uh, held companies back, Francis, from doing business with GSA, whether it's on the schedule or another contract, because they have a difficulty showing that they're offering the government a competitive price at the contract level. Everything's done with these companies on a deal-based level. What we're getting to with task order-based pricing is that deal-based level experience, which makes it easier for the small business to play in the arena that they usually play in but it also means that they don't have to artificially construct a pricing policy to meet a GSA requirement. Given the fact that Alliant 2 is out and Polaris is in, it strikes me that GSA seems to believe 
time is of the essence. Uh, Laura writes this about the timeline. We're working to release a request for information this month. Hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get a draft request for proposals out within the next few months. Is that doable, do you think, Larry? Francis, I think it's doable, but I would even challenge the agency to go faster. Uh, putting out a draft RFP in a few months is uh, not really well-defined, and it's kind of consistent with what you would see for a normal GWAC experience. I don't think GSA intends Polaris to be normal. Indeed, I think they could really set out uh, an innovative uh, place for themselves in the landscape if they were able to get Polaris contracts out and awarded by the middle of next spring or early summer in time for people to make buys during the last part of the FY21 fiscal year. I think that's doable, Francis, particularly if nobody has to negotiate pricing or submit pricing information. I've talked recently about the viability of large indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts. As you know, that's where I've spent the bulk of my professional career. One of the downsides of those contracts now is that they can take as long as five years to put in place. Five years across five Aprils is a great name for a Civil War book. In fact, it is a name for a Civil War book. But it's no way to have an IDIQ strategy in government, particularly when you want to take care of small businesses and you're publicly seeking innovation. I think we can get this done much sooner. Literary expert Larry Allen, thanks very much <laughs> for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.